Good afternoon and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I am your host, Tachnik, joined today by a guy I'm very fortunate, I feel, that I had a chance to get him on this show. I've admired him for a while and I was really excited to see this latest project come out because it gave me a chance, frankly, to reach out and invite him on the show. Say hello to Jonah Berger, who is a marketing professor uh, at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the new book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. So welcome to the show, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. It's great to be here. Well, it's a pleasure, and I do appreciate you making some time to join us. Uh, Jonah, before we get into the book, take a second. Just tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. I'm a professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and for the past decade or so, I've been, along with a number of great colleagues, studying why things become popular. So why certain products, ideas, behaviors, even baby names, why they catch on and how social influence drives those things to become popular. So it's about making things popular, what makes them talkable, or what makes them go viral. Uh, uh, Jonah, let's just be honest, there's a lot of content out there uh, or people who are attempting to answer that riddle and crack that code. Uh, why did you need to write this book? You know, I think really if, if you look on the web, uh, the, the answer that's out there is twofold. It's either one, people say it's cats. Cats are the reason that things go viral. <laughs> Or two, they say it's random, that it's luck, that there's just chance. Um, when you actually look at it, there's no data uh, addressing why certain things are talked about or shared more than others. Um, a lot of gurus out there that have theories but never really backed it up by testing it in any way. So we really went out there to test not only what we think is true but also to see whether those ideas were actually true. So, you know, for example, we looked at over six months of New York Times articles. Every article written by the Times, over 7,000 pieces of content to look at, well, sure, articles that are featured on the homepage get shared more, but why do articles make the most email lists? What about the content itself? Let's say the emotions that the content evokes or the utility of the content. How does that affect what people share? We looked offline as well. We looked at hundreds of different brands that have had word of mouth campaigns. Some do better, others do worse. Why? What are the psychological drivers of sharing? And so we were able to dig down and find the science or the psychology behind talk and social transmission and use those insights to really help people craft their own contagious content. Well, let's just be sure it's noted that a lot of these gurus, their own content is hardly viral. So the, <laughs> that, that should tell you something. Uh, so Jonah, the, the idea, the goal is to move an idea or, or a project. And, and I feel like you mentioned psychology a minute ago. I feel like it's not even about the tactics or the strategy. I mean, yeah, it, it is. But it seems to me it's really more about reading and moving people. Is, is that a fair assessment? I think your, your point about moving people is, is really key. It's about understanding why do we talk about and share some things rather than others. It's not random. It's not luck. There's a science behind it. You know, Think about what you talk about around the lunch table or what you happen to share over email with your friends, what articles or videos you pass on. It's about understanding the motivations, the underlying drivers of that behavior, and, and using that to help our own products and ideas catch on. So the, the book is organized around six principles, and we'll go through those in just a minute. But I want to talk about social influence. A lot of, lot of chatter on the interwebs about influence, and, and I'm not just really talking about clout, uh, but this notion of 
some people say that, that a successful marketer is is merely someone who can just move content. And one thing it's one thing to publish a, it's one thing to create content or a product, but it's another thing to actually get people to to move it. Talk a little bit about the importance of social influence. I think social influence is really, really key to, to driving products and ideas to catch on, whether it's active social influence, someone actively telling someone else about a product or idea, or even passive social influence. You know, We find in our research that if your neighbor buys a new car, you're more likely to buy a new car too, not because necessarily they told you to buy one, but merely seeing what they're doing affects your own behavior. And so understanding the science of social influence, the details behind it, how it works is, is really key to, to making your idea or your product or even, uh, you know, a pick of behavior more likely to catch on. Do you run into trouble when you try to force influence when you're, when you're out there saying I have influence, thus you should listen to me. I mean, I feel like you can, you can overdo it when you, when you try and, and think about everything in the context, I want to be influential. You know, everybody's heard of clout now, and there are various scores online to, to measure your influence. Um, what we talk about in the book is, is the message is more important than the messenger. It's not about finding the most influential person or the, the guy or gal with the most friends or most followers. It's about figuring out what makes anyone talk, whether they have 10 friends or 10,000. If you're an entrepreneur, you don't have money to, to advertise. You don't have a lot of money to find celebrities to talk about your product. What you need to do is turn your regular customers that already care about your product, turn them into advocates. And turning customers into advocates is all about getting them to talk and share. If you got a product that people like, how can you make one person more likely to tell another person? If they're already telling one person, how can you make them tell two? How can you increase the chance that people spread your information and along the way help your product diffuse? Joe and I have a background. The early part of my career was in politics, and and as is no surprise to you, a lot of egos, a lot of ambition uh, in the people that that are active and involved in in politics, and a lot of them just want to do wanted to achieve and attain power and clout and influence, and, and they thought that having a title of congressman would just get them there. And I <laughs> I, would, I would always sit there and say to them, no. The title certainly can have an impact, but it's about getting people to take action. It's about building a political organization that, and that happens one person at a time, quite honestly. And 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 I, when I was recruiting people for my campaigns, I, I wasn't looking for experienced political hacks. Quite frankly, I was looking for the opposite. I, I was just looking for people who who were good people people. <laughs> I mean, is that really what a marketing strategy ought to be built around is how do we, how, I mean, it's, it's, it's empowering those advocates and building these evangelists. Uh, I mean, is that really what ought to be the first and foremost strategy behind anything, whether it's a, a business, a nonprofit, a political campaign? Definitely. And I think what you're alluding to, you know, certain people are are people people. Well, well, this book teaches you how to become more of a people person, how to understand how social influence works and, and help you harness it to make your own ideas successful. Okay. All right. Well, let's just get into these six principles. Uh, uh, it's, it's, we launch off with social currency. Talk about that a bit. So social currency, the idea behind it is that people talk about things that make them look good 
rather than bad. Make them look smart and in the know rather than you know behind the times or out of it. Uh, a great example actually of this happened a couple weeks ago. Some of your listeners may have noticed uh, LinkedIn sent an email out to a number of their users saying, hey, you have a profile that's in the top 5% of profiles or the top 1% of profiles. Uh, and lots of people really, uh, that resonated with them. They shared that information. But if you think about it, why did people share that information? Well, they shared it because it makes them look good. To have one of the top pro profiles, you seem like you're special or, or interesting. You can think about the same thing with frequent flyer miles, right? When you get upgraded to first class or when you get a special tier of status, you like to show that off to others because it makes you look good. But what's important in that is that while you're showing off yourself, you're sharing that email about being in uh, the top 5 or 10% of LinkedIn, LinkedIn comes along for the way, for the ride. You're talking about you and you're making yourself look good, but you have to mention LinkedIn as part of that conversation. And so LinkedIn gets word of mouth by people talking about themselves. Well, if you get bumped to first class, you're probably going to tweet about it. And, and it, it, it's just, it, the, the, the tactic, though, is an organization ought to figure out ways to make their customers feel really, really special. Even though everybody may be made to feel special, that still matters, right? Because everybody still thinks that they're the most special. I mean, so let me tell you a quick example of a sandwich that people might know of. And, and you think exclusivity is all about, you know, high-tech products and, and, and luxury services. Let's take it to McDonald's McRib. So McDonald's has a sandwich. It's called the McRib. It was invented a few years ago because McDonald's uh, had run out of chicken. They needed a product that wasn't chicken to be on their menu. Uh, they came up with a thing called the McRib. It's sort of a misnomer. It's very little rib meat, actually, in this sandwich. It's a lot of other stuff, including stomach and intestinal stuff and <laughs> not the best parts of the animal. It's covered in barbecue sauce. They release the product. It does okay, but it doesn't do extremely well. They pull it off the market, and then they actually release it differently, and it does extremely well. And what they do is they only make it available in certain stores for a limited time. Some months it'll be in Denver, some months it'll be in Indianapolis, some months it'll be in uh, San Antonio, different months at different times of year. And people now go nuts for it. Whenever it comes into town, they can't wait to tell their people, oh my God, this sandwich is available. There's actually a, a tracker online called the McRib Tracker where you can go look up which particular cities or towns the sandwich is available in currently. And if you think about it, they harness the same idea of social currency, making people feel like insiders. But they did it for a sandwich. Who would have thought? But by applying these ideas of scarcity and exclusivity, they got people talking because it made people feel special to spread the word. Well, scarcity is the main point there. I mean, if you can if you can make someone feel like they have something that no one else does, uh, then that, that can have a real impact. Yep. All right. So triggers is the next principle. Talk about that. So triggers is the idea of something is, is top of mind, it's tip of tongue. Uh, and an example here I, I really like is actually the song Rebecca Black made a few years ago, Friday. Do you remember that song? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, you know, people hate this song. It's been called the worst <laughs> song of all time, which itself is sort of an accomplishment. Pretty impressive to be the worst song ever. Um, but it's done really well. It has over 300 million views. Why? Right? Why is this song that everybody hates doing so well? And it's a pretty terrible song. It's about a teenage girl getting up in the morning, going to school. Not really that great lyrics, but it's done so well. Why? Well, if you look at the data, you'll actually notice that there's a spike in attention, a spike in searches for Rebecca Black, then it goes down. Then it spikes up again, then it goes down, then it spikes again, and so on. And if you look at the spikes, they're actually not random. If you look closer, you'll notice that they're seven days apart. And if you look even closer, you'll notice that it always spikes on Friday. 
And so that song is equally bad every day of the week. It's bad on Monday, bad on Tuesday, bad on Wednesday. But Friday, there's a reminder in the environment that happened the day of the week reminds people of the song that encourages people to talk about it and share it. And that's what scientists would call a trigger, something in the environment that reminds us of something else. So if I said peanut butter, for example, lots of people would say, oh, yeah, jelly. Uh, if you said rum and, lots of people would say Coke. And so peanut butter is like a little advertisement for jelly. It makes people think about it and encourages them to both purchase it and talk about it and share it. Uh, okay, I get it. So explain how that would apply to a, a small business guy or, or some salesman. So, so it's about uh, encouraging people to think about your product or idea. There's a, a restaurant in Philadelphia that harnessed this beautifully, for example. Uh, they came out with a $100 cheesesteak. It's a steak restaurant. Uh, you might say, well, $100 cheesesteak, that's nuts. No one would pay that amount. It's, it's a high-end cheesesteak. It's a high-end restaurant. Uh, the cheesesteak has Kobe beef. It has lobster. It has champagne on it. But more importantly, think about why that example is perfect for Philadelphia. If you think about Philly, there's lots and lots of cheesesteak places around. People in Philly love to debate which cheesesteak place is best and talk about their favorites. And when people come into town, they bring them to the Philly cheesesteak places. And so it's a great trigger to remind people that story about the $100 cheesesteak. That, that restaurant didn't have a huge marketing budget. They didn't spend much money on advertising, if, if any at all. But they were able to get people talking because they linked the product to something that was frequent in consumer environments. Emotion is the third principle of the six. Uh, why, are, why are organizations so afraid to put emotion into their sales and marketing? I, it, it, I, don't, I don't get it. Talk about that a little bit. I think there, there tends to be a fu uh, tendency to focus on, on function. People want to mm. tell everyone what their product does, the best features that it has, or the reasons to buy it. Um, but, but people don't think in terms of features. They think in terms of emotions. They think in terms of benefits. They think in terms of what problem does this solve. And so rather than focusing so much on the function, we need to focus on feelings. We need to think about how can we get people activated or fired up, make them want to talk about this product because they care. If you think about it, emotion is the key to motivation. It's the key to driving us to take all sorts of actions, whether it's purchase or whether it's word of mouth. And so by focusing on feelings and getting people to care about your product or service, even if it's not naturally very emotional, is a key way to get people to talk and share. Well, if you remember that we're, the goal here is to move people, how, how better are you going to do that than, than touching their emotions, right? D definitely. And if you can move people, they'll care so much that they have to spread the word. Right, right. The fourth principle is public. Talk about that. So a good way to think about public is, is imagine you're in a city you don't know about and you're trying to figure out where to go to eat. Uh, how are you going to figure it out? Well, many people would rely on a time-tested rule. And that is, let me look for a place that's full. Because you assume that if the restaurant's full, it must be pretty good. It must be worth, worth going to. But important to remember there is if you couldn't see inside the restaurant, you couldn't use people as information. You couldn't use others as a signal of quality. And so the idea behind public is, look, people often follow others. But if we can't see what they're doing, it's going to be really hard to imitate them. So companies and organizations need to make the private public. They need to make things that are otherwise hard to see more publicly visible. Are, are you suggesting that social proof really does have an impact on, on things getting spread? Oh, social proof is, is key. You know, I mean, think about one example we, we talk about in the book. It's an oldie but, but goodie is uh, with the Apple's headphones when they came out and they made those headphones white. 
seems like a simple design decision. What's the big deal? But if you think about it at the time, everyone was using a portable CD player. There was new technology. It was unclear which brand to go for. And it was really hard to know if you couldn't see what brand other people were using. But wait a second. If, if now one brand puts out headphones that are white and you notice lots of white headphones around, now that it's public, it's easier to imitate. You're going to be more likely to go out there and, and use that product because you see lots of other people doing it. Practical value, the fifth principle. Discuss that with us. Practical value is, is all about news you can use. There's uh, one example I, I share in the book uh, about an 86-year-old that makes a viral video about corn. And, and if you're sitting there like I was, you're going, wait, hold on. A guy <laughs> who's 86 years old can make a viral video and about corn? What's, what's viral about corn? Um, but if you watch this video, it's actually really simple. He has a trick for taking care of one of the key problems with corn. So if you've ever eaten corn, you'll notice there are two problems. One is it gets stuck in your teeth, and the second is those annoying silks that go up and down the side that you can never seem to get rid of. Mm. Uh, he has a trick for getting rid of the silks. So you take an ear of corn, you chuck it in the microwave for a couple minutes, you take it out, you cut the bottom off, you hold the husk, and the ear falls out, clean ears every time. And he's gotten, I think at this point, over 10 million views for a video <laughs> about corn. And you'd be sitting there going, corn, who would, wow, what's, what's exciting about corn? Nothing exciting, not a lot of social currency, but useful information. And so it's not rocket science here, but a key reason why people share things is if it helps others, whether it makes their lives better, whether it saves them time or money. And so that chapter in the book talks all about how you can highlight incredible value to get people to talk. I mean, again, if, if, if you're focused on moving people, then, then empowering them to make a, a positive change on something is a, is a critical step. Definitely. And, and one thing I talk about in the book is, well, you know, what makes something seem like a good deal? For example, how can you frame information to make it seem like a better deal? Uh, I talk about the rule of 100, which is a secret for framing deals to make them seem better. And so there's some important psychological tricks or hints you can use to make the same information seem even more useful. The last, the last principle is stories, and, and there's an, there's, you talk about how stories are like Trojan horses. Ex explain that to me. So your listeners might remember that old famous uh, story of the Trojan horse, uh, the, the Greeks versus the Trojans in an epic battle. It lasts 10 years. Finally, the Greeks win by hiding themselves inside this wooden horse that the Trojans drag into the city. Uh, they climb out and they, they sack Troy. They win the war. Uh, but if you think about it, that story, the Trojan horse story, is not just entertaining. It also has a moral. Uh, you might remember that the moral is beware of Greeks bearing gifts or beware of your enemies, particularly when they're being nice to you. Uh, and if you think about it, actually, most stories are not just entertaining. They have a moral, whether it's The Boy Who Cried Wolf, that famous story uh, where the moral is, hey, you know, don't lie. Or uh, The Three Little Pigs, the moral there is if you, if you work hard, uh, it'll pay off in the end. And so if you think about it, most stories are actually like Trojan horses themselves. There's an exterior shell. There's some entertainment value there. Um, but inside is, is a moral or even a brand or a benefit that comes along for the ride. One of my, my favorite examples from the book is from a company called Blendtec. This is a video probably many of your listeners have seen, but they have this series of videos called Will It Blend, where they drop things like an iPhone in the blender and show how it gets cut to shreds uh, with their powerful blender. If you haven't seen this video, go check it out. Uh, it's called Will It Blend. Type in Will It Blend in iPhone, I think, 3, and, and you'll see it. Um, it's a remarkable video. It has lots of social currency. It's amazing. Amazingly surprising and, and even inspiring. It evokes lots of emotion. 
But at the core, there's a benefit there that's being shared. People don't want to advertise a blender company, and they're not sharing it because they want to spread the word about the blender. They're sharing it because it's remarkable content. But along the way, you can't watch this video or share this video of an iPhone being torn up by a blender without realizing, wow, that blender is really, really powerful. And so along the way, the key message that that brand wants you to remember comes along for the ride. It's hidden inside that Trojan horse of a story. Well, we all know the Blendtec story, and it's an amazing story. You talk about triggers. If, if you were to, you, you said the, the example of, if you say peanut butter, I would, someone would say jelly. If, if you said blender, I would probably say Blendtec. And it's entirely because of those, of those goofy videos. I mean, I get it. I get it. Um, Jonah, if I stopped the interview now and play this for someone and said, all right, now go do this, they'd say, oh, it's all good stuff. Uh, but Todd, this doesn't have this doesn't work for me and what I sell. I mean, can can you apply these principles to anything, any service, any product, or is it is it a very specific? Uh, does it apply to only specific things? I think the the most important, or one of the most important messages from the book is that anyone can craft contagious content. You might be sitting there going, "Well, hold on, I get it. You know, if if I can." Uh, you know, make a really catchy song, or if I have a really exciting product, people will talk about me. But take Blendtec. I mean, Blendtec makes blenders, one of the most boring, mundane products imaginable. And, and apologies to Blendtec there. Um, but yet, after this video, sales went through the roof, right? Sales went up multiple hundred percent, I think over 300% after this video, because they figured out how to get people to talk about and share blenders. Um, lots of other examples exist out there. You know, There's a toilet paper company. You'd think, who would talk about toilet paper? But they made colored toilet paper, like black toilet paper, for example. I guarantee the first time you see black toilet paper, you'll tell someone else. Um, think about B2B. You know, Well, B2B is really boring. Oh, you know, no one would share B2B examples. But wait, if you look at it, actually 91% of B2B sales are driven by word of mouth. And so the same principles apply there. And there's some great B2B examples in the book as well. There's some good service examples. It's not about constraining this to a particular product category or domain. It's about understanding what makes people talk and being creative and applying these ideas to your product or your service or your message. There's actually a free workbook. If um, your listeners go to my website, it's just jonaberger.com. There's a whole bunch of free resources there, including a workbook to help you work through the, the ideas of the book and apply it to your own product. But you can do this for anything. I led a workshop a couple days ago where a company applied this to cement. And you would say nobody would talk about cement. But by thinking about you know what makes cement remarkable and thinking about the steps framework, they were able to think about how to get people talking. Yeah, uh, we'll definitely link up to that in the show notes. Uh, Jonah, one final point, and then I'll let you go, that I, want, I, that I think is a really important point that I want my audience to, to really understand is the notion of I, I don't want you going through this, this episode and be thinking that you have to have an effective Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn strategy for these principles to work. Because is, is it fair to say that a lot of of the impact of these six principles happens offline? So this is one of the biggest misconceptions about word of mouth. You might think, wow, all word of mouth happens online. Uh, and actually what I found in doing research for the book is only about 7% 
let me repeat that number again because it might be a little surprising, 7% of word of mouth is online. Um, most word of mouth is actually face-to-face. Uh, from you know regular consumer to regular consumer. And so sure, social media is useful. And indeed, if you sell a product that's really web-based, social media may be even more important to you than it would be to companies on average. But most word of mouth is offline. And the key here is thinking about how to turn customers into advocates, how to get people who already like your product to tell one or two more people, whether it's offline or online. So if you want to invest in online, that's okay and that's worth your time. But offline is also important. Even if you're a small business, even if you're a corner coffee shop, you have customers coming in. Even if you're a service, you're a, a lawyer or you're an accountant, you know, you have customers that like what you're doing. Other customers need those type of services. How can you make sure that they spread the word? That's, that 7% blows my mind. When you, when you sit back and think on it and reflect, uh, it, it begins to make sense. But at first, it is, it is a shocking number. Joe, and I hate to say it, but we're out of time. Before we let you go, how can people get in touch with you, learn more about your work, and get their hands on this book? Uh, good question. So uh, I'm at jonaberger.com, just J-O-N-A-H-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. There's a bunch of free resources there. Uh, the book is available at all major retailers, all online outlets, and in 15 languages. Um, there's also, if you're interested in these sorts of things, my publisher convinced me to get on Twitter, so I'm there <laughs> at J1Burger. Uh, and feel free to, to spread the word to me. I'd love to hear about your caller's uh, own experiences in this sort of space and um, love to help people apply the concepts and make them work for their businesses. Jonah Berger, professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Contagious, Why Things Catch On. Jonah, it was great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Todd. All right. Well, that wraps this episode. On behalf of my guest, Jonah Berger, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time on Intrepid Radio. (laughs) 